A misery of colds? I think I've caught another cold, so I'm getting like extra chance to be patient and mindful. But what I was trying to talk about in the middle of my coughs and sniffles and snorts is uh, the way I see samasati, right? right? Mindfulness, the, the awakened mind which knows the way things are. And um, you can see how in, in the Four Noble Truths, suffering is caused by the attachment to craving. So awareness of the way things are is presence without agenda. Whereas desire to get something, if it's not known, you attach to it, it's presence with trying to get something. Right? And what we're trying to get then in that formulation is some kind of condition of happiness or whatever. And that attachment is when we lose sight of the kind of silence and peace of the mind. Which doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, desire is not wrong. Like I, I want to I wanna get rid of this flu and uh, I want the retreat to go well, and I want everyone to be happy, and so on and so forth. And that wanting is not, it's not selfish or whatever, but like just, just this retreat, I really was really kind of up for teaching and doing the retreat. And then you, know, you get this sickness, and then the feeling is uh, one of disappointment. But if I'm just aware of disappointment, as an object, then it quickly goes away, and the mind abides in peace. But if I'm not aware of the disappointment, and then my desire mind gets in there, and then I feel grumpy or frustrated or irritated, and that's attachment. Right? So the, dis- the, the, the wanting to be healthy is fine, but my physical health is dependent on other, on conditions other than just my wanting, age, and maybe my immune system is low from India, whatever. Right. So, so kind of understanding how to use wanting in the practice is an interesting one because we want to be free from suffering, right? We want to be peaceful or we want to settle the mind down or whatever. And that if that wanting is simply trying to become something, then we won't have right mindfulness. But if we can see um, that, that at times we are awake to the way things are and we can notice that kind of sense of presence and openness. And then the program is more to look at why we forget that. What is it about my conditioning that gets trapped into uh, obsessive thinking or some kind of distraction into the sankharas? What is it about my character and the things that trigger off this kind of uh, attachment to Usually it's attachment to thought, really. That's really one of the big problems. So I'm not trying to become anything or get anything. I'm awakening to the formations which, I, which my attention gets lost into. So it's all, it always comes back to actually the same practice of awakening and then understanding. So what one of the things we consider in Buddhism, what are the... Um, what are the kinds of mindsets, and I spoke about this earlier, what are the factors which would enhance this capacity to be awake to the way things are? And obviously something like generosity. And generosity is, a, in, in the classical teaching that, that we get from Theravada Buddhism, the first thing 
the Buddha lays out, it seems, to someone who is a neophyte, or someone who is new into this tradition, the first thing he mentions is generosity. And you can see how generosity is really counter to uh, craving. And, and that it, it, is a, it is a mind state which brings happiness. And then that happiness is a way that the mind doesn't need craving, doesn't need an object, because it's somewhat fulfilled through, through its uh, social activity. So generosity is, is uh, not, as I was saying earlier too, generosity is not the goal, but it's a method, part of a method. And, and that insight for me is important, that these wholesome states of mind that we can encourage and make strong in our life, that they are not goals in themselves. Because if they were goals, then each time I didn't feel generous, if I felt mean-hearted or, or I, mean, I didn't want to really share my time with someone, then I might feel, oh, uh, I'm, I feel guilty or I should be generous and so on. So the should-be's of I should be generous and I shouldn't be mean is taking the that wholesome state of mind of generosity as a goal. But if it's the method, if it's the method that I use, then if I don't feel generous, fine. This is what meanness feels like. This is what mean-spiritedness feels like. And then if I'm aware of that and I don't entertain it, its power recedes in consciousness. And if I entertain uh, the impulse is a generosity, its power gains. And then the generosity becomes a foundation for enlightenment, for peace, and uh, for the, the, the capacity to be really present to the way things are. And that's just a kind of classic pattern of developing the wholesome and abandoning the unwholesome. And for me, a lot of the, uh, the wholesome is, is around this sense of open-heartedness, whether it's compassion or, or generosity or forgiveness, or, or joy at the goodness of someone else, they all bring my mind to a sense of uh, fulfillment and uh, well-being, and a happiness which isn't just dependent on me having a, something that entertains me. It's a kind of well-being which comes from sort of my own resources, my own understanding, my own wisdom, and it has a kind of longevity in the heart. It has a sense of abiding there. And then when the heart has that kind of open-mindedness, then of course samadhi is much easier. It's much, much easier to, to focus the mind. So the, the, kind of the second, usually the second level that the Buddha would uh, talk about in the teachings would be the morality. Just the, the sense of ethical responsibility and ethical, ethical impeccability. And you can see how that would be a foundation for, for mindfulness because if I have boundaries uh, around my uh, action and speech, which are given to me by a teacher or, or a, a tradition, and then I use those boundaries to watch my own uh, mind go out into things which are unskillful. So if the boundaries are not lying, say, these are gross examples, not lying or not uh, disparaging others, and I find myself going towards putting someone down behind their back, that training in, 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 a, in a discipline helps me to become awake to the tendency maybe to disparage someone. And then I can be aware of it again. But if I think that right speech is the goal rather than the method, then I can feel very guilty. You know, I kind of get lost in putting someone down behind their back and then I walk away and I feel terribly guilty and then I apologize to them and so on and so forth, which is okay. But 
the, the practice of mindfulness is to awaken to the egotistical, to the unwholesome, and not make a problem out of it. Not, not say that I am wrong for having this, but see, no, it's natural too. You know, competition is natural, uh, jealousy is natural, these kind of things. But no longer to invest uh, belief into it as a self. So if I feel, if let's say, you know, Venerable Kama starts to just levitate above his chair and he's in deep, deep samadhi and I thought, I've never levitated and I feel, I've never done that. That's not fair, he's just started. And then I feel jealous about that. If I took, like, joy as my goal, then the jealousy would be very threatening. But if I take mindfulness of change as my goal, my constant goal, then jealousy would arise, I'd know it, and it would cease. So that's why, to, to me, you know, right, mindfulness is so, so central and crucial to what we do moment by moment. You know, I don't know, like in my own, my own life as, as a monk, the, the kind of early years were, were not very um, calm or together or blissful or tranquil or all those lovely things you hear about. They are quite taken up with restlessness, quite a lot of agitation of mind, um, fair bit of sickness in, in, in Thailand. I got typhoid once. That was the kind of worst sickness I got, which was really interesting. Like typhoid, it made me feel incredibly um, homesick. So interesting. I get. I was. I was in the hospital. Right. I was just totally out of it, and and I kind of. I was yearning for my mother and grapes, <laughs> and you know the kind. Of, oh, I'm lonely and I'm dying. And but Lopacha came and visited, and and he was really lovely. He'd come and he'd, because uh, we had. We had an outbreak of this stuff at what Nanachar. It was very worrisome for Lopo Semedo. And it, it came from the water. But whatever, we had three or four of us in the hospital. And one of the monks, Sajan Pabagro, he's a big bloke. And he had a huge uh, mattress in the hospital. And he was sweating so much that the water was dripping through the mattress, right through the mattress onto the floor. And... Uh, so it was, it was quite challenging. But Lumpo Chao was just lovely. He would come to the hospital and joke with us and, and, and help us through that kind of thing. So, the, the, and the thing that he often uh, emphasized, and I think the Forest Tradition emphasizes, is that, that, that the, the kind of virtuous quality of patience and, and, and determination, those are, are important to sometimes see through difficult um, uh, states of mind, not indulge in them, but also not deny their existence as something that's wrong. And when when negative things come up, again, if if I just take this sort of idealistic position that I should be, I should be A and I shouldn't be B, I should be loving and I shouldn't be hateful, then it then it'll never work because that's not mindfulness. It's simply programmed judgment. If I just believe in the hate. And that's also not it either. You know? But if I see that hatefulness is a natural condition, and then I'm willing to endure it, but I'm not going to believe in it. So that comes through consciousness, and there's the kind of awareness of change, awareness of change, it feels this way, it feels this way. And there, sometimes we can certainly introduce practices to, to uh, balance things out. But sometimes we introduce balancing practices in order to get rid of. So if I... If I have hateful thoughts and they come and go, 
that's different than me entertaining hatred, right? If I have revengeful thought, like like sometimes I don't know about you, I'll have a I'll have a a memory of something that happened to me 10, 15 years ago. It was quite painful where I got uh, blindsided by by a kind of nasty piece of betrayal, and uh, then that that memory. And then the feeling of wanting to murder the person is very real. It comes up. But because it's mindful, there's mindfulness. It's like, oh, yeah, this is what a murderous impulse feels like. This is what the desire for revenge. Then it's not a problem. It's not threatening. It's not frightening. But if my idealism says that I should never feel that, and it's that, oh, I thought I got past that. I was through that. Then uh, these memory traces that come up become very threatening. And then one tries to focus and not have them. So we live. We live in a. You know, we live in an inner world that has memory traces and all manner of things that come into consciousness. And the beauty of this teaching is that it's all. It all belongs, as Lopez says. But that we have choices. We can make choices, and and our choices is then to uh, pick up the wholesome and abandon the unwholesome, and to actually is say to myself if I feel like conflicted with someone or something. To actually say this will change, just be patient. Here's a statement of wisdom, right? It's a statement of distancing rather than being like totally immersed in it. And those little statements that we make to ourselves, um, it's uncertain. So like maybe you have a, a really neat insight that calms in meditation and you have that feeling, now I've got it. Very dangerous feeling actually. Because as soon as you say, now I've got it, then probably... You're going to try to get it next time. But if you say, oh, this is uncertain, even the feeling of having gotten something is uncertain, then you're back in awareness. And your awareness is something which is beyond that particular joyous condition. It's deeper than that. So the question then for, for like in my practice is, what is it about my character and my relationship to the world where the sense of presence gets lost? A lot of it this is just in wrong thinking, just the kind of habit of, of thought that, that we, we just kind of get drawn into habitually. It's kind of like a, like a current or a vortex of thought. So the capacity to go to no thought is very helpful. Not to get rid of thought, but to every now and then just listen and stop the mind. Feel, know, know, know the feelings in the body. And then can I sustain that? Can I take the breath? Uh, I sometimes we use the sound of silence, which is this kind of ringing sound in the back of the silence of the mind. The various meditations that we do to sustain awareness rather than to become, and then we're abandoning craving. We're abandoning craving. All right, leave that for you to ponder. Andamayang tamakata sa tukarang tatamasin. Sadu, sadu.